This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast. It is our season finale wrap-up edition as far as looking back at the season that was for East Carolina baseball. Unfortunately, we are not talking about Omaha. We are talking about the finish to the season as the Pirates go 0-2 in the Vanderbilt Super Regional. Unfortunately, fall to 0-6 all-time in Super Regional Series. 1-12 overall, that lone win coming at Texas Tech. I am Stephen Igo, the host of this podcast, publisher of hoistacolors.net. Jonathan Wagner, he's joined me all year, uh, is back once again for our finale. And of course, I know there will be a lot of questions about the potential speculation about Cliff Goblin, that sort of stuff. And we might have a whole separate podcast later this week, depending on what happens there. But we're going to mainly focus on the season that was. We'll talk more about Cliff Goblin later. But Jonathan, this this series, we knew it was going to be an extremely tall task. We knew it was going to be runs at a premium for ECU. You're on the road. You're facing the defending champs, the top two, you know, two top five picks in the upcoming draft. And I think it kind of played out largely how we thought it was. It was just a matter of could ECU get enough offense to scratch out a win and force a game three. And unfortunately, the the answer was no at the end of the day. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, anytime you go into a three-game series, knowing you face Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter in the first two games, that's a that's a really tall task. So, yeah, I think like you said, you know, we kind of expected a, I think a low scoring, and it would be a matter of can ECU score runs, and they didn't. Rocker and Leiter were as advertised; they were lights out, and ECU's pitching, I thought, pitched very well all weekend. Um, really no poor performances, I don't think. Gavin Williams, Carson Wizen on both pitched well. But the offense, outside of Josh Moylan's solo home run, and the scaly runs. And I think Josh Moylan probably hit the ball better than anyone else this weekend. He had another hard hit fly out to deep center field in game one. But it was it was tough. I mean, Rocker and Leiter, they're tough. And ECU hasn't faced that level of pitching all season long. They really haven't faced anyone close to that level of pitching all season long. So I think that played a big role, but it was, it was tough. I know we were both there. It was, it was tough weekend all around, but man, rock rocker and lighter they're they're lights out when they're on. And there's a reason they're both going to be top five picks in next month's draft. Yeah. We kind of said going in, if they were going to be on, it was going to be tough, tough sliding for ECU. And it, it turned out to be true. You know, and it didn't help, obviously. And I don't want to make this a podcast about the umpires because the umpires, listen, ECU, I don't think, would have lost the the series because of the umpires. I mean, they lost it because Vanderbilt was the better team straight up. But there were a few, if not more, definitely obvious questionable calls. And, 
you know, rocker and lighter are good enough that you don't need to be giving them six to eight inches off the plate. I mean, if you're giving them a, a backdoor slider six inches off the plate or a, a breaking ball away in the other batter's box, like, that's just, it's already unhittable. Uh, you add that to it, and it makes it more difficult. And college baseball umpire, and I've said all year, is, is just, quite frankly, a joke at times. Um, you see them struggle in Major League Baseball with it, but it just filters down to college, and it's bad. But we'll get into some of that. Maybe as the games go on. All right, Jonathan, let's kind of dive into, you know, we always go game by game. I don't even have the bot scores pulled up because, like, there's not too much to really go through in terms of each game. But let's go quickly game by game. And we'll start with the opener. And we knew that Gavin Williams had to be at his best for ECU to have a chance. And, man, Gavin Williams was just, I mean, I'll honestly say he was more electric. And you can you can say this as well, Jonathan. You were there in person. I, I thought his stuff was more electric than Kumar Rocker. You know, Rocker may have had better command, but he was mainly sitting ninety two to ninety four. Williams, I mean, he, he hit ninety nine a couple times in the first inning, and everybody complaining or, or worried about his velocity last week that went away quickly. Um, but Gavin Williams, man, that what a special performance! And I think even though they lost. Uh, I think that performance will be remembered all time as far as ECU fans go. I think it's the best performance of Gavin Williams' career. And it's a heck of a time for that to come. You know, I said earlier, ECU hasn't faced that level of Vanderbilt pitching all season and really not close to it. But I don't think ECU has faced that level of just all-around talent that Vanderbilt has on their roster. So I'm not going to lie, I wasn't really sure what to expect from Gavin Williams coming into this game. I wasn't sure, you know, is he going to be his normal Gavin Williams self, you know, coming into the game 10-0, and or is he going to have a hard time adjusting to that level of competition? And he proved me wrong. He proved everyone, everyone that had similar thoughts as I did wrong. And, yeah, I agree with you. I thought Gavin was more electric. His stuff was better than Rockers, I thought. But it was impressive. He probably, he probably made himself some real money on Friday at 11 a.m. Central Time. And he made himself some money because I think the fact that he was able to show that he can pitch that well against a team that talented, the way he did, it it improved his draft stock a lot, I think. So I think it's a performance that's going to pay off well for him. And for ECU, that's exactly what you were asking for when you went out there Friday. Yeah, he was incredible. I mean, it's – and we got a couple questions here – I sent out a, a prompt on Twitter and a couple of Gavin Williams questions. So we'll go ahead and answer these rather than come back to them. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay. Why can't I find it? All right. Yeah. Was that the was that the best game you have ever seen Gavin pitch? Daniel wants to know. Uh, I think we both agree. Yes. Um, just he was he was phenomenal. Baseball America came out with their top 500 for the draft. Do you think he goes in the first round after that performance? Uh, so I was standing in the press box on Saturday after, you know, the day after the ECU game on Friday that Gavin pitched, and there was a Vanderbilt, I don't know if he was a writer or a member of the team or what, this was like an hour before the game, and he basically, I, I was not in the conversation, but I could hear them because they were talking right behind me. He basically said he talked to a national uh, cross-checker as far as the scout goes for one of the, you know, the be- the bigger teams there, and that cross-checker told him that Gavin added a million dollars to his slot bonus, so probably going from a second-rounder to a back-end first-rounder with his performance on Friday. So, uh, you know, and maybe that is just 
overreaction to the moment, but I think the fact that he went on the road in a tough environment, held his velocity, pitched deep into the game, Cade 13 versus Vanderbilt, which is a, you know, they, they do strike out a, a decent amount, but still to go in an SEC environment, basically match Kumar Rocker pitch for pitch. Uh, he held the running game good. You know, the Enrique Bradfield guy, he walked to begin the game, and I'm like, oh, well, he's easily going to steal second. And Gavin kept him on first and didn't even allow him to steal, which is honestly just as impressive to me as some of the pitches he threw. So uh, I, I just think the way he composed himself, the way he pitched with energy, uh, best performance I've seen. I love that he was emotional. You know, I think after he struck out the side in the first inning, he came off the mound saying, we're here, we're effing here. Uh, you know, like that's what you got to have your your Friday night dude do, and uh, uh, I, I thought for sure that that he should be a first rounder. If he's not, it's just based on you know potential injury as far as his injury history goes, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, I mean he was electric, like we said, and you got to think the first run he gave up, it was a bunt single that led off the second inning where he was out of the batter's box. I thought and then a double and an RBI ground out. So it's not like he was, when he was giving up hits, it's not like they were hard hit balls, really. The double down the left field line, that was hard hit. But the bunt single, you know, you can argue, it's one of those things with umpiring, like we talked about, you know, should that situation have even come up in the first place. But Gavin was electric, and I agree. I think he's a first-round talent. It's just going to be a question as of, does a team, you know, value what he's doing right now over his past concerns with injuries, his ability to hold up over a full season. I think he's kind of shut those doubters wrong and kind of shut out those concerns and show that he can be an effective starting pitcher. He can, I think, I think he threw a career high in pitches on Friday, if I'm not mistaken or not, yeah, maybe not a career high, but definitely a season high over a hundred. But I think Gavin really, he, he did wonders for himself on Friday. And to me, I think he's a first round pick. Does he go first round? I'm not sure, but no more than early to mid second round. But I believe he. Sh- I think he deserves a first round pick. So I hope he does, and obviously he does too. I mean, just on stuff alone, he's probably a top ten to fifteen pick. But I, I know that, you know, his age combined with injury history or whatever, I get it. You know, teams aren't. It's always tough to take a pitcher that early because there's always risk involved with pitchers. But I mean, the, the way it goes, even if he needs Tommy John, at some point. Uh, you know, the history shows of the surgery in recent days that you come back and you throw even harder and better more times than not. So I think even a team will be willing to take that risk with Gavin if it comes down to it. So, yeah, th- so that just incredible performance by Gavin. Did everything he could to keep ECU in it. Uh, unfortunately, on the flip side, Kumar Rocker was, you know, really at his best in terms of command, you know, the the he was landing not you know I've watched games of Kumar in the past where he just cannot throw his breaking ball for strikes it's in the dirt and basically he's got his fastball and his cutter but in this game he was throwing his fastball cutter slider and just randomly broke out a curveball at like 73 miles an hour and he was throwing them all for strikes in different counts and when you have a guy that's doing that I mean, there's really not much you can do. I thought ECU came out aggressive in the the first inning and actually had some decent contact. But from there, Jonathan uh, just could not really find a rhythm. Kumar took over the game. Uh, the big spot in the eighth, I believe it was, that Francisco swung 3-0. and You know, there was some talk about wh- whether or not he should have done that. I honestly do not have a problem with that. I mean, Norby's on first with two outs. 
you got your your guy at the plate, Thomas Francisco. You know he's going to get a good pitch. And yeah, you know, you look hindsight's twenty twenty. He popped out, and you don't get anything done. But you look back at the pitch; it was a good pitch. He just missed it. So yeah, you can make the argument he should have waited for a strike. But I, you know, I don't have a problem with letting your guy swing three zero in that spot. I mean, if he hits a two run bomb, then he's the hero. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you're still going against you know, even if it's not Kamar Rocker at that point. Maldonado? I think they went to Maldonado yeah. out of the pen, who's just as nasty. He comes out, yeah, he comes out pumping ninety eight, and you think, oh, good, you finally get to the Vanderbilt bullpen. It's like, oh crap, this guy's electric too. So, I mean, to me, with that Francisco at bat, runner on base, three zero, that's the best pitch you're going to see. That three zero pitch is the best pitch you're going to see the most hittable pitch you're going to see. If you take it, you get to 3-1. You're not, not guaranteed to see because you have to score. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with Francisco, you know, risking it. And he's hit so well all year, I think he's earned the right to be given the green light in that situation. It just didn't pay off, and he got a little under it. But realistically, you can't be mad at Thomas Francisco it, you can't be mad at anybody who gave him the call. I think, like I said, it's the best pitch you're going to see probably all game. So I have, I have no issues with it. It was just Vanderbilt's pitching is very good, and I think we saw that. So you had to get a little aggressive in a spot where, you know, you're desperate for a run. You're desperate for base runners. So, yeah, I have, I have no issue with it whatsoever. Yeah, and I think some ECU fans will have issue with it just because you're swinging down, you're swinging 3-0 in a one nothing game. But, you know, there's no guarantee that Josh Moylan gets a hit in the next at-bat. Um, there were times, you know, he, he had some good contact in the weekend, but there were times he also looked a little overmatched. And I think Maldonado ended up striking him out on Saturday to close out the game anyway. So, I don't know, you know, maybe that wasn't the best matchup. So, I, again, I don't have a problem with when Francisco swinging there and, uh, I asked him about it after the game, and I wasn't trying to be like a dick or anything. I was just more, you know, hey, are you trying to be aggressive right there? Um, like, because I'm generally curious, like, you have the green light. I, I had no problem with it. So, yeah, I thought, you know, he was basically just like, yeah, I'm trying to be aggressive, you know, trying to uh, make something happen. Nothing was happening all all day. He had one of the two, one of the team's few hits. So, if Connor Norby or Francisco have a 3-0 green light, I'm all for it. Anybody else, maybe you question, but those two guys, you let them go. Um, and that, So that was basically it. Maldonado comes in. He gets Francisco. At that point, it was a one nothing game. Vanderbilt adds a, a run in the ninth, I believe. Or no, in the bottom of the eighth to make it 2 nothing. Yeah. And then they just uh, quickly close it out from there. They, they actually brought in the Luke Murphy guy. Another dude just pumping 98, 99, whatever, you know. Uh, they just apparently print these guys out at Vanderbilt. Casual. Yeah, so uh, then they then we go to Saturday's game. Pirates fall 2-0. Uh, they finished with three hits, all singles in the game. And uh, Vanderbilt had uh, a, couple of not, a couple of extra base hits, which proved to be a big difference. But uh, we go to Saturday, and really similar story I, I think deep down we kind of knew that since ECU lost with Gavin on the mound that it would be tough sledding because Jack Leiter probably more electric than both Rocker and Gavin in terms of just pure stuff and but Connor Norby led off the game with a single and I'm like all right you know they almost have just as many hits as the day before 
Unfortunately, the Pirates uh, were shut down from there with lighter. A few questionable calls from the umpire, of course, that are well documented on social media. Um, and the biggest story for me from this game was how would Carson Wisenhunt handle the moment. He didn't look comfortable at all in the regional. But Jonathan, man, he looked he looked ready to go. Again, similar story to, to Gavin where he issued a leadoff walk, and you're like, man, that's not a good sign. Uh, but then I thought Vanderbilt did him a favor by trying to bunt, uh, and that kind of settled him down, I thought. You know, he got in out on the scoreboard, uh, was able to kind of roll from there, and he had that changeup working. And I thought Wisenhunt being in that spot, getting that experience, facing Jack Leiter kind of showed, hey, even if Gavin's not back next year, which he won't be, uh, Carson Wisenhunt might have the, you know, just the mentality to step into that Friday night role. Yeah, it was – really impressive I think I said with Gavin you know I didn't really know what to expect and if I didn't know what to expect with Gavin Williams coming into a super regional against Vanderbilt you know what the heck do I expect in a Carson Wisenhunt I don't think Wisenhunt has really looked comfortable looked like himself since he came back from his arm soreness shut down in the middle of the season and I thought this was his best start since then he was obviously electric to start the year and I think this weekend on Saturday he was back to that Carson Wisenhunt that everyone fell in love with to start the year so, I mean, he came out, he walked his first batter, but yeah, I mean, he's really settled down from there. A couple second inning base runners and then one, two, three for the next two innings. It was impressive. I thought I was a little surprised that he got the hook after the two walks in the fifth. But, you know, in that situation too, you know, he is still working back from arm soreness. It's still obviously the biggest spot he's ever pitched in his, in his career. It's his first real season, you know, playing college baseball so you know they went to the bullpen matt bridges and but yeah i mean wasn't on it was very encouraging because i think he is your friday night guy next year and it showed that it doesn't matter who he's playing you know i think it amped him up a little bit he was fired up as well just like gavin was you know after those one two three innings i think in the third when he struck out two to close things out he went back to dugout and i believe he was all fired up then too so it was nice to see, and we're going to need Carson Wisenhunt to step up next year and take over that Friday night role if ECU wants to have similar success to this year. So it was a very encouraging start, and like I said, I wasn't sure what to expect coming into it. So it completely blew me away, and Carson Wisenhunt, he's going to be special in time. Yeah, I still wonder if he's quite at 100%. His velocity was good, you know, towards the end of the year, 91 to 92. Most times he'd bump 94 a couple times on Saturday. But I think just having the offseason to rest and get back to 100% will really help him. You know, we talked about it all year. He just hasn't had anything close to this workload. So, uh, tremendous year, all things considered, for Wisenhunt. And I think he has a chance to take the next step next year. Um, you know, that, that fifth inning was interesting and, you know, you know, it's tough to say, you know, I had mixed feelings on it because they had a lefty coming up in Bradfield, and then they had uh, Carter Young, who all weekend had struggled to hit right-handed uh, rather than left-handed because he had a shoulder injury. He just did not look comfortable right-handed. So um, you almost want to leave in the lefty there, but then also he's just walked two guys, even though there were some borderline pitches that didn't go his way. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and you don't want to bring in your six-year senior like already down two to nothing, you know? Like you kind of want to live or die by your six-year senior. 
So I don't have a problem with the move. I mean, I you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe if they leave him in, he strikes out Bradfield and strikes out Young, or he gives up a three-run bomb or walks in a run. You know, you just never know. So I don't have a problem. Cliff going with his gut, going to Bridges. And to be honest, Bridges pitched uh, brilliantly. He gave up the one hit in two and two-thirds innings. He just made the mistake on the fastball. I would have liked to see them stick with the slider there against Young. He tried to sneak a fastball by him. And he put it into the gap. But the other thing, too, Jonathan, that people forget, he struck out Bradfield in the 3-2 slider, and a good throw at third base would have had that runner, and that would have ended the inning. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. They pitched to Young, and he gets the two-run single. So that was a huge moment in the game. Uh, but outside of that, the pitching was pretty good. I mean, at the end of the day, it was a 2 nothing game for a long time. The offense just has to score, and it took until – Josh Mullen in the seventh inning to hit a solo shot off lighter to make it a two-to-one game. And that's really the first time ECU put any pressure on Vanderbilt all weekend. And that was just a solo home run. So they, they never had any, like, hey, the bases are loaded with one out or there's runners on first and second with nobody out. Like, there was never any pressure applied to Vanderbilt. Uh, and I thought – I think that's when ECU's at its best offensively. And since they couldn't do that, uh, Vanderbilt pretty much neutralized ECU's offense. Yeah, they completely neutralized ECU. And like you said, you know, Josh Moreland led off the seventh inning with that solo shot. It was a moonshot. That ball was very, very high. It went straight up and it just kept going. I don't know where it landed. I don't know if it cleared the bleachers in right field. I don't know if it landed there. I was in I was in a stand, so I was going crazy at that point. But and then Alec Makarevich, he followed it up with a walk, and you start to think, okay consecutive guys reaching base i believe that that's got to be the only time all weekend that consecutive guys got on so Moreland leading it off with a big run and then mccarab getting on you start to think okay you know this this is where ecu is going to come back and really put themselves in this ball game obviously Ag- agnos flew out to follow that up and then hoover grounded into a double play so unfortunately they couldn't follow up and didn't get a base runner from there so that was tough but yeah, it was it was hard. ECU just couldn't get guys on. They got a couple walks here and there throughout the weekend. Obviously, not a lot of hits, but Vanderbilt's good, man. So it's tough. Their pitching is legit. Again, the best pitching staff ECU has seen all season. So it was just tough. But hopefully, you know, for a guy like Moylan hitting that home run in the seventh and then being the final out of the season, you know, hopefully he kind of sparks them and he comes back next year. I think you hear those stories around baseball, whether it's pros or college all the time, you know, guys who make the final out of the season, they come back next year with a vengeance and that's all I can think about. So hopefully Josh Mullen had a great fresh. But I think he'll have a big off season and coming to next year as a big bat. We hear Cliff Godwin reference the fact that he made the final out of the 2001 super regional all the time. And I think that still fuels him to this day. So uh, we'll see, but yeah, great, you know, great game really for Moreland and Wisenhunt, two future key cogs in that environment. So I think that that bodes well. Uh, the top of the ninth happens, and ECU brings in Cam Colmore in a two to one game. And you know, for the first time in a while, we just saw Cam just not really have his command. And um, I guess that made the the home plate umpire feel like he could also squeeze Cam because there were at least two to three pitches that should have gone his way. Um, so I'm sure not the outing that Cam wanted to, to finish his career, but I mean, 
what him and Matt Bridges have done, you know, it's, it's really it'll nobody even really remember that. And at the end of the day, ECU probably wasn't going to score again. I mean, it's I would have loved to see Norby, Francisco, and Moylan get a shot in a two to one game rather than four to one because that just changes the dynamics. But you know, Maldonado was just throwing bullets. I don't know if ECU could have even got a hit or get, got anyone on base, but it, it was a little disappointing to see the Pirates not go into the bottom of the ninth down one instead of three. Yeah, for sure. But like you said, you know, Colmore, it's really the first time all year that he's come out and just not had it, I thought, at least to this extent. But once again, I, I keep going back to the same point, but Vanderbilt is the best team ECU has faced all season, and it's not close. So... I mean, Colmore came out, a couple walks, got pressed on that 3-1 pitch that was straight down the middle of the plate. Was it a little high? If you ask me, no. Belt high is a strike. Belt high, letter high, is a strike in the rule book. It it was not called, and I could go on a whole rant about umpiring, but and you know I will for a second. You know, you can always say – just adjust to it. You adjust to it. And, you know, when I was in the stands at first, that's what I was saying. I said, you know what? I don't care how bad the umpiring is. You just have to adjust. You can't adjust to a damn slider in the other batter's box. You can say swing at it. What are you going to do, flail at it and swing and miss? It's a ball. It would hit a batter. If a lefty came up when Seth Cadell got that strike call, strike call in the other batter's box, if a lefty was at bat right then, it hits him in the shin. You can't adjust to that. And it's stupid. Like you said earlier, it's a joke. And for Colmore to throw a ball straight down the middle and get squeezed and then walk, and he ends up walking in a runner later on, it was a, it was embarrassing for college baseball. It was awful. You have these accounts like Pitching Ninja on Twitter just tweeting this crap out and saying this is ridiculous. These are two of the best talents college baseball has seen in a while. So they don't need help. Nobody needs help on Vanderbilt. And it, so. that's the thing. It wasn't just ECU fans, like, you know, being sore losers. It was, like, the entire college baseball community being like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? So, clearly something uh, something's not right there. And, yeah, and then Seth Cadell later in the game was swinging at sliders in the outside batter's box probably because he had to. I mean, it's just whatever, man. Um, but, anyways, uh, Pirates lose – Again, two competitive games. I thought they played they, – they pitched as well as they could have uh, just about, and they couldn't – and I just think they were overmatched at the plate. Like, those two guys are not just, like, great college pitchers. They are, like, generational talents. So, when Jack Leiter's out there throwing 98 and then dropping, like, a 76-mile-an-hour hammer on you, I mean, what can you do? Um, so, yeah, it was just a tough matchup. We talked about it going in. And the series was not over before it started, like uh, one media member said, but it was an uphill <laughs> battle. Uh, and the Pirates had to execute at an extremely high level to make it happen. Like, even, you know, you look back at that uh, that time in the eighth when or uh, seventh when Makarevich walked, you know, Agnos couldn't get the bunt down. They were trying to sack bunt the second. And that would have been the first time you really applied pressure to them all weekend. You know, he does make good contact, flies out to deep center, but then, you know, instead of uh, – you know, having a guy in runner in scoring position, you ground into a double play. So, like, little things like that, you just can't make those mistakes And against that elite pitching. Um, 
post game was tough, Jonathan. I know it was tough for uh, for you as a fan. For me as a media member, man, it was like it was painful because I knew every year we we talked to the seniors uh, after the super regional. Like I remember Turner Brown at Louisville uh, just just tore up, and um, that will stick with me forever. I'll. You know, we talked to Matt Bridges, Cam Colmore, and Tyler Smith after this one, and that'll stick with me. But I, I, I remember just looking in right field when Vandy was celebrating and seeing, you know, Coach Godwin hug all the players. Connor Norby, who probably played his last game in an ECU uniform due to the draft, he was he was as shaken up as anybody. Um, it was a tough scene. It always is, especially when you come up one one step short of uh, your ultimate goal. Yeah, it was really tough. And, you know, obviously I was in the stands. I was right there around right field, first base, kind of in between there. So just seeing it, seeing the guys come out, just just defeated. It was it was tough, especially for those guys like, you know, Colmore, Bridges, and Tyler Smith was just torn up. He was torn up. At least when he got to post game, I watched it later on. He had a tough time, and it was tough. He didn't get a chance to pitch this weekend. So that kind of sucked, but – and then just other guys like Ryder Giles is torn up as much as anybody I thought. You know, a lot of guys he's close with are going to be moving on, you know, Gavin, Connor. So it was tough. And, you know, I kind of held on to this year as my last thing in my, my last ride in my senior year too. So it sucked. But, you know, it was a hell of a year. This weekend does not take away from the fact that, you know, this team, I think this team was tighter than any any team that EC was seen before just with the COVID um you know, complications earlier in the year, you know, these guys were only spending time with each other to start the season in fall, fall ball, all that good stuff. So this team was very tight, but it was a tough way to end the year. Emotional for everyone involved, I think. But to me, it for the guys that are coming back, I think it's going to add fuel to their fire for next year. And, you know, obviously we'll go through the phase right now with who's going to be back and all that good stuff, all that fun stuff that we'll talk about. But yeah, for now, for the guys that will be back, I think they're going to remember that moment in the right field. They're going to remember how hard it was to lose, and it's going to kind of light them on fire for next year. They're going to come back fired up. But it's a tough way to see a season end, especially one like this. Yeah, so many guys that will be moving on. I mean, six years for Bridges and Colmore. And Bridges said they had, you know, unfinished business. Unfortunately, we're unable to uh, to complete it, but, you know, they try their their absolute best, and when ECU does make it to Omaha, they'll be just as responsible as the players on that roster. So um, it'll happen, as they always say. We just don't know when. So uh, the Pirates will continue to try and make it happen beginning next year. All right, let's dive into the rest of these questions to wrap up the show, Jonathan. Um, let me pull up my Twitter right quick, the old Twitter machine. All right, David Monroe, he wants to know, one, what is the roster size for next year, back to 35 or still at COVID levels? Uh, and So this year they allowed the seniors returning plus the 35. I think next year it goes back to 35. And, of course, you have the 35-man roster, and then 27 of those players can be on some sort of scholarship. You have 11.7 scholarships to spread around to 27 players, and then you can have basically eight, eight walk-ons. Um so, yeah, managing a baseball roster is a bitch, uh, for those that don't know. Uh, that's why you're going to see a lot of guys in the portal and all that sort of stuff. Um, what He also wants to know what is on Cliff Goblin's wish list still that needs to be done 
facility wise. Uh, well, he's gotten a lot of things done basically with uh, over the years. You know, they've done a hitting indoor, a pitching indoor. He's gotten raises for his assistants. I think the main thing he wants now is uh, an extra weight room. And, you know, this was part of his plan for the $4 million building down the, the left field line is uh, kind of a patio area for fans to watch games on the patio along with a weight room. Now, I don't know where this stands. This was like probably three years ago at this point because the goal is now they're going to add a, a weight room for all the sports over there on that side of campus um, because everybody just works out in the Murphy Center now, which is just probably not really conducive to uh, however many teams they have, 18 athletic teams. So uh, I don't, I haven't heard anything on that for a while, but I think if they could pull off something like that one day, that would obviously be a goal of uh, Coach Godwin. So that's kind of what I've heard. Jonathan, have you heard anything or have you envisioned anything added added else to uh, Clark Leclerc? No, I, I can't really think of much else off the top of my head, but I mean, that would be cool. But yeah, I know the weight room plans. Um, I think it's supposed to be around the athletic maintenance. A lot that you're just saying, but you know, that's all I can think of. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. All right. Destry wants to know, is the American athletic conference going to get back to having a three to four strong programs? The AAC was a drag on our RPI big time this year. I don't think it'll be as bad as it was this year. I don't I don't know if it'll be as good as it was the past few years without UConn. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle. You know, unless like a team like South Florida really capitalizes on this super regional run, which I don't know. I'm not 100% sold. I think they just got hot at the right time. ECU does need one of UCF or South Florida to be consistent. Um, Cincinnati needs to continue to play at their level because they historically have been pretty pretty much a drag on the conference. Memphis needs to figure out what it's going to do because they have really fallen off a rock. So I don't know. Wichita appears to be on the right way. Mip, or uh, Houston has taken a stumble under Todd Whitting. You would have to think he needs to be on the hot seat at some point if they continue trending in that direction. Then Tulane, I don't even know what to make of Tulane. Uh, but ideally, you get Tulane, Houston back to what they used to be, which is basically a, a regional contenders year in and year out. Wichita continues to improve, and then those Florida schools continue to do something. But I don't know, Jonathan. It, it seems like other teams in the league are having trouble sustaining any sort of success. Yeah, and it really stinks. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, ECU doesn't really get the respect – that it feels like it deserves, you know, when it comes time to, you know, pick when it comes just normal rankings throughout the year, all that stuff, it's all related. All that stuff is related to the conference not being great. UConn hurts. UConn is a good baseball school, but we need a team like, like you said, UCF, USF, ideally a couple of them to really step up and not only just, you know, make the tournament, you know, once every 10 years, this up and consistently be in contention for conference titles and tournament bursts, all that stuff. You know, we need more than one. If ECU is the only team that's consistently going there, the American is never going to get the respect that it feels it deserves in baseball. If you keep having teams like, you know, Tulane just fall off a cliff like they did this year, you know, it's tough. If you want ECU to, 
really, and this will go into one of the later questions, but, you know, if ECU wants to start getting more respect and hosting, maybe being in contention to host these super regionals and that kind of stuff, the conference has to be better for that to happen, I think. So it's all, it's all related. So it sucks that it's out of ECU's control, but yeah, it would be nice for another two or three teams to really step up and at the very least every couple of years, at least show that they're capable of stepping up and being a contender. Yeah, ECU needs this to be like a three-bid league minimum every year um, in a top-five RPI conference because, like, they just get punished so much right now in a year like this where they have one off weekend, whereas if you're in the SEC, if you get swept or you lose a series, basically every weekend you have a chance to make up for it because the league is so good. So it's uh, – look, I get the SEC is a beast, but it can be kind of unfair at times, so – I don't know. It is what it is. All right, let's uh, let's move on as far as questions. But definitely, the ECU needs the AAC to improve uh, with consistency. Uh, Toby asks, which freshman or JUCOs for the incoming class has the potential to make the most impact for ECU next year? You know, baseball recruiting, I try to follow it as closely as possible, but, I, you know, it's hard to get a ton of information. I do know of a couple names, you know, Merritt Beaker, who was actually the first commitment for the 2021 class years ago is an interesting lefty that really knows how to pitch uh, pretty good velocity. I think he's got a chance to pitch fairly early in his career. From what I've heard, uh, he's a high school kid out of North Davidson, Ryan McChrystal out of Fuquay Varina, really talented guy could be a potential two way guy. First baseman catcher type can really hit, uh, Jacob Jenkins Cowart's a big dude who's got some pop. I don't know how game ready he will be. Quinn Allen's a third baseman. Um, they're bringing in a Juco kid, Carter Cunningham, who had some good numbers at times. You know, his numbers at Juco weren't great this past year, but I think he's he's got some pop and he's, he stole a ton of bases, so really athletic. And then they signed, uh, or they got a commitment from Henry Zippe, I believe is how you pronounce it, a Juco second baseman from Iowa Western who could compete for Connor Norby's spot. But you know, I was looking at his stats, and he barely even played this year, so I don't know if he had an injury or what. So uh, pitching-wise, Trey Savage is a, a guy from um, from Pennsylvania who's been up to 93 to 95. Uh, so, you know, Wyatt Shinkman's another right-hander with some big-time stuff. Uh, so you got some guys here. Charlie Hodges, a Juco. Uh, recruit from Parkinson College, so uh, we'll see how it transpires. But one thing I know, Jonathan, Cliff Goblin always always brings in talent, so we'll have some pieces for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, looking at the roster and who's leaving after this year, you might think, oh, good, you know, ECU's really going to fall off next year. You know, obviously losing Gavin Williams is going to be big. Losing Connor Norby is going to be big. But even not even looking at, you know, maybe new guys coming in next year. I think there's guys on the current roster that didn't get a lot of chances that are ready to step up. You know, guys like Cam Clonch, I think is good. Skylar Brooks, you know, we haven't really seen him kind of take control of the spot. Obviously he's had some injury concerns throughout his career, but he still has all the talent in the world. And yeah, I mean, there's pitchers, guys like, you know, Josh Gross, you didn't see a whole bunch of this year. Danny Beals, Landon Gins, they kind of came on late in the year. But I think there's a couple of talented right-handed pitchers, left-handed pitchers, position players. There's going to be a lot of holes to fill on next year's team, but there's plenty of bodies to come in and fill them, whether they be guys on this year's current team 
or guys that are coming in next year. So I think ECU is going to be fine. There's a lot of talent coming in. There's catchers, Landon Howard, too, another third baseman. Uh, I'm similar to you. I don't know a lot about some of these guys, but I've kind of started my research into the class over the past couple of days since, you know, what else am I going to do now? So I've kind of started looking at that stuff. So I, th- I think ECU is going to be okay. They have some real talent coming in next year. And whether they play right away, I don't know. But you're right. Cliff Godwin brings in talent. So the Pirates are going to be A-OK on the diamond. It's the same conversation we have every year. Who's going to replace Burleson? Who's going to replace Packard? Who's going to replace Duanye? Who's going to replace Connor Litton? Who's going to replace Jake Agnos? Like, there, there's always more guys in line. And just as Connor Norby kind of showed, just because a freshman doesn't have a huge freshman impact year, that doesn't mean they can't be good in, you know, another year or two. So, unfortunately, we will, we will not see A.J. Wilson it appears, in a pirate uniform. Uh, no more pump it up, Jonathan, as the lefty has somewhat surprisingly entered the transfer portal. Uh, from what I've heard, this was AJ's decision, and he just wants to change the scenery. You know, I don't think it had a ton to do with the coaching staff or, or whatnot, but I guess he just was not happy with his role, his playing time. There's already been a lengthy discussion on the Hoist of Colors message board about this situation, so you can check that out if you're a VIP member, but... Uh, I thought he was looking at a potential closer back end role next year if he kind of continued to progress. But Pierce, he wants to take his talents next week, next uh, next year somewhere else. So that's a little disappointing. Yeah, you know, I love I love pump it up. I I was with you in the beginning of the year. I hated pump it up. I hated the song. I thought it was stupid. But you know, after I heard it enough times, it just grew on me. So. It sucks that I won't come back, and I agree with you. I thought AJ had a chance to step up into a closer-type role next year because I think his slider is as good of a slider as I've seen from a lot of pitchers in college baseball. But it's just – I think the issue with him is, you know, the slider was pretty much it. You know, his fastball, he had trouble commanding, couldn't really throw anything else for strikes. So it's tough to be a one-pitch pitcher, really. So – but I, I still thought AJ had potential. It was very surprising to me that he did enter the portal. I've started kind of my preview next year just on my own um, with the roster, guys coming in, roster outlooks, that kind of stuff. And he was not a guy I had in my projected bubble, if you will. So it was a big, big surprise, especially with, you know, losing your back, pretty much your entire back into your bullpen right now depending on if C.J. Mayhew goes to the rotation next year. So I was surprised that A.J. entered the portal. But, you know, we don't know the whole story. And if he feels like he needs a change of scenery, he wants to go somewhere else, and he's got the power to do that, best of luck moving forward. But I will miss Pump It Up. I will miss tweeting at you all the time I go, every time I hear it, that it's time to pump it up inside Clark LeClaire. I know you'll miss it a little bit too. Yeah, part of me kind of will. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um I will a little bit, and they played at Vanderbilt, right? At, at one point, so I uh, to start off game two. That's on right, Saturday. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right, a couple more questions here. Yeah, I think you have to retire it though. If the player who uses it transfers and basically says he doesn't want to be a part of your program anymore, you have to retire it. Uh, <laughs> let's run through some of these because we're still going to have the Cliff Godwin discussion. Uh, John Moody asks, what do you think is on Cliff's top three facility wish list? We kind of already touched on this. I think the thing down the left field line and kind of his own weight room, uh, or at least the weight room that he has more access to, is really important to him. Um, 
So, yeah, we kind of hit on that earlier. Uh, Chris Cozart asked, did Vanderbilt want it more? Of course, of course. They won, so they clearly wanted it more, Cozart. Clearly being facetious with that question. Uh, to be honest, I think ECU probably wanted it more uh, because they hadn't been there. Vanderbilt didn't even dogpile. So, you know, they've won a national championship. Unfortunately, Vandy, too talented at the end of the day. Um, Whirl JT, I don't think this person's related to Bryson Whirl. <laughs> Um, I thought the same thing. Um, anyways, uh, this person asked, when will Cliff Godwin hire a hitting coach? Uh, Cliff Godwin is his own hitting coach, so as long as he is the head coach, he will not hire a hitting coach. Josh Best Betts asks, how's the incoming class stacking up? We touched on that. Uh, he asked about Cliff Godwin, LSU. We'll t- touch on that in a minute. And then Gavin gone, Norby likely as well. Um, who steps up next year to fill their voids? I mean – you know, we think Wisenhunt will be a Friday night guy, probably Jonathan. Second base, I think, will be wide open. I think it'll be an open competition, whether it be Starlin, Barini, the Zippe guy. Makarevich can play second, so I think it'll be wide open. How about you? Yeah, and I think with the two third basemen you have coming in next year, Landon Howard and Quinn Allen, like we talked about, you know, I like Zach Gagnos at third, but if these third basemen come in and they feel like they're a better fit at the hot corner, you know, someone like Zach Agnos could slide over to second or one of those guys could slide over to second. So there's a lot of candidates. I think, like you said, it's it's going to be wide open. A lot of guys can take that role. I think pretty much anybody can take that role next year. But I don't know. It all depends. You know, these guys are going to come in. They're going to find out what position that the team prefers them at because there's, there's a few holes to fill, you know, whether it be out. It all depends on the draft. Obviously, we don't know, you know, the Bryson Worlds, the Thomas Francisco's, those kind of guys. We don't know whether or not they're going to move on or come back. It, so I think once that stuff starts to kind of iron itself out, we'll start to have a little more of an idea of what holes you need to fill and then who might fill them at that point. But right now I think it's it's tough to say, but there's a lot of candidates. Alan Powell says, uh, don't know how many openings we will have on our roster, but it seems like ECU would be very attractive for an impact incoming transfer with the new transfer rules. I mean, definitely, I think so. But it's just a matter of, does ECU have any room, and are they a good fit for the culture? Whether it's Cliff Goblin as the head coach or Palumba or whoever, you don't want to start taking a bunch of transfers when you already have a tight roster space as it is. You're having to make tough decisions. I mean, you have to take an elite player and elite personality at a program like this. Um, ideally, to me, if you could find like a proven starting pitcher, maybe you do that. But outside of that, I, I think you kind of have to stick with what you, you've brought in and kind of ride that. That's that's kind of my take on it, at least. I don't think ECU is going to be one of those programs that loads up on transfers. Yeah, I agree. I think I'd like to see, you know, if you do it, you know, whether it's a proven starter or even a proven, like, you know, bullpen guy that can come in and you know take one of the Matt Bridges Cam Colmore type roles but it depends I think there are candidates from this year's bullpen that can step up into the starting rotation next year there's a lot of guys that can do both that you know after a year another offseason another year in the program I think could step up next year so it's tough there's a lot of talent on the roster a lot of guys I'm interested to see how they step into bigger roles next year but yeah I, I just don't I don't see like you said, I don't see ECU being a program that just takes in a whole bunch of transfers, especially position player-wise. I think there's a lot of talent there, a lot of guys that can really grow into solid role players next year. So I, I don't see a lot. 
All right, let's get to this discussion, Jonathan. We've beat around the bush for like 45 minutes now. Cliff Goblin, clearly a candidate for the LSU opening. I mean, we've been hearing this for a while now. Uh, we respectfully did not ask about it during the team's regional run or super regional run because it just wasn't the time. But um, with his ties to Palmineri and LSU, he's definitely – at least involved somewhat. You know, I don't know if he's officially interviewed or all that stuff, but he's definitely involved. Um, you know, multiple outlets reporting now that LSU has kind of honed in on Mike Bianco, the Ole Miss head coach, and Cliff Goblin. And there was some talk of Pat Casey, the former Oregon State coach, but that has died out. There was also talk of Kevin O'Sullivan at Florida. That has died out. So right now, as we record on Tuesday afternoon and things can change quickly in the coaching world, uh, it looks like Mike Bianco or Cliff Goblin to LSU. And um, that's not a good thing for ECU because if it's Mike Bianco, then Ole Miss's number one target is probably going to be Cliff Goblin. Maybe Dan McDonald would be the one guy they would have on their uh, on their list ahead of Cliff Goblin. McDonald was at Ole Miss before he went to Louisville, and then he is just absolutely – just you know Louisville was a completely joke of a program before he went there and he has taken them to national prominence so ideally they might want McDonald over Cliff Godwin but that would be it and I don't know Jonathan I'm I'm torn on this uh I think Cliff Godwin at the end of the day is going to get offered either LSU or Ole Miss and this is just my gut I don't have any inside information I just think the way that the the cards are falling and unless he just turns it down, you know, LSU is probably the top job in college baseball. Ole Miss probably a top five job in college baseball. He's got ties to both. He would triple his salary more than likely, at least double it, more than double it. You have elite facilities, uh, elite funding, to me, it's just going to come down to can he walk away from ECU, and I don't honestly don't know if he can. I, I if he he might can say like yeah, I'll I've always wanted the LSU or Ole Miss coaching job, but when it comes down to him physically like saying that he's going to walk away from ECU, I think it will tear him apart. And maybe it's something that he can't say no to because these jobs, if they're filled by other people, are not going to be open for another 15, 20 years. This might be his chance to take an elite job. But it's going to be a brutal decision for him either way. I know how much he loves ECU and cares for ECU, and uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of days because I think that there's a very real possibility he gets offered a, an elite elite job. Yeah, it's tough. You know, just kind of keeping an eye on this stuff throughout the last couple months since, you know, Palmineri, LSU retiring at the end of the year, you know, these discussions, at least we've been having it, having them for a while, you know, this possibility is there. And, you know, obviously all these candidates are thrown out throughout the last couple of months. And then you think, okay, you know, there's, there's a few candidates. And then you get down to two. One of them is Cliff Godwin himself. And one of them is the head coach at the other school that Cliff Godwin probably can't turn down. That sucks. But I think I think I think you said it. You know, it's going to come down to, you know, Cliff Godwin loves ECU. He wants to he wants to bring ECU to Omaha, and it's tough. Like you said, you know, if those jobs open up and he gets offered, that might be his last chance to take one of those jobs for who knows how long. Maybe 
it might be his last chance to take one of those jobs just since, like you said, you, you never know when a job like that is going to open up again, especially two schools he has ties to. It's tough. But I love Cliff Godwin. He's a heck of a baseball coach. It's well-deserved that he's getting looks for these jobs, I think. But it's just going to come down to, can, like you said, can he leave ECU? And I'm not going to pretend like I know what Cliff Godwin is feeling or what he – is thinking about it in his head with these discussions, but it would be tough if he left. It would be really tough if he left, but I don't know. I, I have no idea. I hope he doesn't leave. He's a great coach, perfect for ECU. He is ECU right now. He is so ECU would, personified. Like, he is ECU, exactly. He's just as much of a fan of East Carolina as like everybody that watches the program. Oh, yeah. And just seeing how – you know, emotional he was after the game. You know, the Brian Bailey interview, the post-game press conference. I was out by the team bus after the game before he went to the post-game and just tears in his eyes. He just kind of stopped and looked at us um, there for a minute before he walked through the crowd and just kind of took a deep breath. And before he left and he walked through and you kind of think, is that the last time? But it's tough. You know, he loves this place. He loves Greenville. You know, played here. It's tough. We're we're gonna know soon, but the next couple of days are going to be pretty tough, I think. Yeah, I would I would think that it would move pretty quickly. Um, LSU and Ole Miss seasons are both over, so I, I think at some point a decision has to be made. And you know that if Bianco or Bianco is offered the job and he says no, then LSU is going to put all its cards in on Cliff. What if what if Coach Godwin says no to uh, to LSU? Then who does LSU hire? Like they have to hire somebody. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's he, but he already turned down Mississippi State and Alabama. People have said that, but Mississippi State is basically like a rival to Ole Miss. They are a rival, so it'd be like ECU, you know, losing a coach to to NC State one day. So I don't think he was ever really going to take the Mississippi State job. This is different. Like, turning down Ole Miss and LSU, like, Ole Miss, his best friend is there um, in Lafferty. He's the godfather of his child. So, it's just – and then LSU is LSU. Like, it's the number one job in baseball. So, tough decisions. I can't blame him any which way he, he chooses. If he if he uh, does get offered one of those jobs and remains at ECU, uh, we might as well go ahead and build a statue of him because I don't think he's ever leaving ECU. Uh, I know that his goal was to get the Pirates to Omaha, but, like, you know, at some point, you know, if, you, if you're just turning down all these jobs, like, people are going to quit coming after you because you're not going to leave your alma mater. So, it's a tough decision. I know it's going to be difficult for him either way uh, if he gets offered. So, But we'll, we'll have a podcast later on, obviously, because at some point it'll come out, hey, he's staying or he's going. Maybe we'll talk about that. So this might not be your official last podcast, Jonathan, with Hoist the Colors. <laughs> we might have a coaching search to cover. Uh, I've already got articles ready if it comes down to it, but um, hopefully that doesn't happen and we continue to, to work with Coach Godwin as the head coach. But uh, it was a fun year. I know it didn't end how Pirate fans wanted it to, but another incredible season and a, a memorable season we won't forget. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I talked about earlier, you know, this team was – tighter than I think any other group we've seen before just with COVID and those complications throughout the season. But for me, 
you know, I don't know what it was. Maybe it's because it's my senior kind of my last season, you know, guaranteed in Greenville. Obviously, I don't know where I'm going to be next year yet. So if you're looking to hire a sports writer, you know, I'm here. Uh, anybody. But, you know, I, I kind of grew attached to this team. And I think this is the most invested I've ever been in any sports team I've followed in my entire life. And that is a heck of a thing to say because I've followed a lot of sports teams. But you see baseball, I, I love this group. I'm friends with a couple of the guys on the roster. So it was a very fun season. It was a season like no other. We're not going to see a season like this. And you're not going to really realize it until a couple of years down the road, just how unique this season was in so many ways. But it was, it was a heck of a season. It was fun. I loved it. And I'm just going to say this one last time. Never give us four damn games in a conference weekend ever again. Thank you. That's a great way to put a bow on it, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Please, no no more four-game series. Return to midweek games as normal. And, yeah, uh, if you want to fund Jonathan working for Hoist of Colors, contact me and we can set something up because I would love to hire him full-time. Uh, 24-7 Sports right now doesn't have the budget to do it on Hoist of Colors, so uh, let me know if you want to do that. We'll set it up, and we'll get that done. But, uh, Jonathan, it's been fun, man. Again, we might be back later this week with another Hoist the Colors podcast, but that'll do it for this edition. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.